Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting now from NPR, if the children are the future, the future might be very ill-informed. That's one implication of a new study from Stanford researchers that evaluated students' ability to assess information sources and described the results as dismaying, bleak, and a threat to democracy. As content creators and social media platforms grapple with fake news crisis, the study highlights the other side of the equation, what it looks like when readers are duped. We're going to talk about fake news and journalism in the age of Trump. Our guests will include Matt LaPlante, assistant professor of journalism and communication at Utah State University, and Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. And, of course, you want your comments and questions to upraxis.gmail.com. Following the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Confirmation hearings are underway for Senator Jeff Sessions, nominated to be U.S. Attorney General. Before anyone gave statements this morning, two protesters wearing Ku Klux Klan robes began shouting and were removed from the chamber. Sessions is opposed by civil rights groups who allege he won't uphold civil rights law equally. In his statement, Sessions rejected that. You know what I believe in. You know that I'm a man of my word and can be trusted to do what I say I will do. You know that I revere the Constitution, that I'm committed to the rule of law, and you know that I believe in fairness and impartiality and equal justice under law. In response to a question, Sessions said that he will recuse himself from any investigations into former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's email probe. Session says that he made remarks during the presidential campaign that could place his objectivity in any such probe into question. The leaders of four U.S. spy agencies are headed to Capitol Hill to offer their views on the Russian counterparts. NPR's Mary Louise Kelly has a preview of today's testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee. An extraordinary lineup of spy chiefs will be fielding questions from senators, CIA Director John Brennan, FBI Director James Comey, National Security Agency Director Mike Rogers, and the overall head of U.S. intelligence efforts, James Clapper. This hearing on Russian intelligence activities follows the release last week of a declassified report on Russia. That report concludes that President Vladimir Putin personally authorized a campaign to influence the U.S. presidential election. Election. The spy chiefs will be offering their first public comments since that report dropped, and in Comey's case, his first public comments since the November election. Mary Louise Kelly, NPR News, Washington. Heavy winds of more than 100 miles per hour and up to a foot of rain may come to parts of northern California today. John Sepulveda of member station KQED reports it's part of a weather system known as the Pineapple Express. National Weather Service forecaster Ryan Walbrun explains the Pineapple Express is a fast-moving atmospheric river of precipitation from the tropical Pacific. Most of the time they're found near the equator, but a few times throughout the winter, if, if the steering winds or the jet stream winds can kind of change their course, we can end up getting those tongues of moisture pointed at the Bay Area or, or somewhere else in California. The winds in the Sierra Nevada equaled the strength of 1992's deadly Hurricane Andrew, peaking at 173 miles per hour. Flood and avalanche warnings have been issued throughout the state and in Nevada. For NPR News, I'm John Sepulveda in San Francisco. On Wall Street at this hour, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 31 points at 19,918. The Nasdaq is up 15 points. It's at 5,548. You're listening to NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cancer Treatment Centers of America, 
offering immunotherapy and other personalized treatment options to address patients' individual needs. More about precision cancer treatment at CancerCenter.com and the Kresge Foundation at Kresge.org. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Carrie Bringhurst. There's a storm currently working its way through Utah, bringing rain into the valley, snow in the mountains, as well as bringing along some problems. UPR's Amy Kobabe tells us why the rain can be so dangerous. Right now, northern Utah has the best snowpack it's had in five years. The storm last week left behind large piles of snow. Now the warmer temperatures and rain could create flooding. That's partly because there's just plain a lot of snow on the ground, and so when it rains, the snow is melting and there's a lot of water. But last week, there were also sub-zero temperatures, so the ground is frozen. That means the water can't soak into the ground, so it's got nowhere to go. Martin Schrader with the Utah Climate Center says that water can go where you don't want it to. Basements, places in uh, flooding-prone areas that have experienced flooding before, um, streams will rise. Uh, along with those rising streams, there's also um, occasional breaking of ice dams uh, because we've had such cold temperatures up in the mountains uh, the last few days. Um, so anywhere near uh, riverways and, and streams is going to be a very hazardous area, and you want to avoid uh, being near those areas. Over the weekend, Logan City officials held open hours for people to come and take sandbags if they needed them. The Cache County Sheriff's Office is reminding people that the warning is there to keep people aware and prepared, not to make them panic. The Cache County Sheriff's Office also has empty sandbags available. The warmer temperatures have experts concerned about avalanches in the northern Utah mountains. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Amy Kobabe. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm going to read the first uh, three paragraphs of a story in uh, NPR. I think you're uh, probably well familiar with uh, this story. Quoting from NPR now. If the children are the future, the future might be very ill-informed. That's one implication of a new study from Stanford researchers that evaluated students' ability to assess information sources and describe the results as dismaying, bleak, and a threat to democracy. As content creators and social media platforms grapple with the fake news crisis, the study highlights the other side of the equation, what it looks like when readers are duped. And as you probably know, researchers at Stanford's uh, grad, uh, Graduate School of, Edu- uh, School of Edu- Education have spent more than a year evaluating how well students across the country can evaluate online sources of information. Middle school, high school, and college students in 12 states were asked to evaluate the information presented in tweets, comments, and articles. More than 7,800 student responses were collected, and in exercise after exercise, researchers were shocked. Their word, not ours, quoting NPR. The bottom line, the takeaway is many of the students failed utterly to distinguish between fake news and uh, real news. We're going to talk about fake news and journalism in the age of Trump. And uh, we would love for you to join this conversation. This course affects us all. Uh, UPRaccess at gmail.com is the easiest way to get to us, UPRaccess at gmail.com. We have with us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thanks so much for the invite. Thanks for uh, being with us, and uh, I don't think I've talked to you on air since uh, your appointment, so congratulations. editor. Thank of the, you very the much. Um, and we have with us uh, in the studio here, UPR Studios, Matt LaPlante, Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication at uh, USU. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Matt. Uh, let, me, uh, let me start with uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce. 
what I'm sure you are familiar with this uh, study. Um, I, I, I'll describe my emotion as, as depression, <laughs> stark depression, when I heard the results of this study. What, uh, what do you think? I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to be depressed yet. But um, there is cause for concern. There's always been propaganda. But the complete inability for young people to be able to distinguish between uh, truth and fiction is troubling. Uh, it's it's a, a problem that we, as thought leaders, are going to have to address. Because uh, I, I think, rightly so, that study says democracy is in the balance. It really can affect our society. Uh, our society's future. And so it's not something to be brushed off lightly. I have a little bit more optimism in the future. I think that young people um, will come around, but it may take some educating. And uh, I guess that's where Matt comes in. Uh, That's right. Yeah, journalism professor. Matt, what what did you think of this study? Well, I'm I'm a little shocked that they were so shocked, honestly. Um, you know, I said, like, when I'm reading the study, I see, uh, you know, the authors wrote, like, at, at, in every case, at every level, we're taken aback by students' lack of preparation. And my first thought was, have these people never met students? Hmm. I mean, today's students, they're, they're not hiding these misconceptions about what news are. Uh, they're blatant. If you have a conversation with young people about news today, you know this. You know this intrinsically. I kind of figured these authors must know it a little bit. Otherwise, they don't know to study it, right? Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with Jennifer. Like, it's... It's we're not on the edge. We're I, and I'm not even sure that democracy hangs in the balance. What we have here is a situation in which uh, false information, which has always been part of our information ecosphere, um, is a little bit more pervasive, maybe a lot more pervasive, um, and students have greater access to it. Um, but if you had asked uh, 14 through 16 year old kids. Uh, 50 years ago, what was in the news, they wouldn't have been tell, able to tell you then either. Um, and that's they wouldn't have not been able to separate fake news from real news. The problem would be back then they weren't reading news at all because they didn't have as much access to it. They also didn't have as much literacy. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is a problem. Um, it is something we need to address. Jennifer is spot on. We need to address it with education. Um, we don't need to be addressing it with education at the university level. We need to be addressing it with education starting in preschool and kindergarten. Um, but I'm not, uh, I'm not ready to jump off the cliff yet. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Dave Pierce, you mentioned uh, the word propaganda. Um, I've got that in my notes uh, here, too. So fake news, propaganda, there, there's some crossover there. And maybe, l- let me address this question to you, maybe we should be more concerned about adults who can't um, distinguish fake news from, from real news. And I, I don't know what your perception is, whether that percentage is increasing. Uh, I I don't know the numbers there either, but uh, yeah, it is pretty concerning how so many adults have been duped by uh, lies, really. I mean, there's no other way to sugarcoat that. Um, when uh, a, a website purports to, you know, has, has the veil of truth, but it's, it's fiction, and, 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 you know, grown human beings cannot distinguish between that and vetted news, um, that's a problem. I mean, I, I, I don't know 
quite what the solution is. I do agree with Matt, though, that access has never been greater. Um, there are so many different sources out there. How do you distinguish between what is something that has been uh, grounded in truth? And maybe maybe it invites a larger discussion about what truth is. I mean, because so many of the mis- misinformation stories that are out there right now are, are called fake news when it really isn't news at all. I mean, it's not... It's lies. It's it's as I think a, a Washington Post critic called it a hoax. You know, call it a hoax. Um, I I don't quite know what to do about that epidemic of um, media illiteracy, but uh, we've got to get the word out there, and people need to start talking about it and admitting that you know they can't take everything on the internet as gospel truth. I want to um, bring up a ver- very recent uh, happening. And talk about context, I'll direct this first to Matt LaPlante. So I think many people are familiar with Meryl Streep's uh, speech at the at the Golden Globes. right? Without mentioning the president-elect's name, she, she took him on for I don't know how many minutes. Um, and she made special reference to the news media, and that the, you know, journalists have to stand up. Um, but, but what's been on my mind is she made a reference to um, President-elect Trump's making fun of a disabled reporter. Um, And then the president-elect tweeted out, for the hundredth time, I didn't do that, and then he gave his explanation. What's been on my mind is half the country goes to the video. And it's obvious to half the country. I guess the other half maybe would would take the president-elect's tweet as as an explanation. So, Matt LaPlante, where, where does the... Does the news media have a role in in a story like that, is providing context or putting the imprimatur of truth or not truth on something like that, or is or is that just something that should be battled out? You know, the the difficult thing in that situation and in many situations is is uh, intentionality. Um, I watch that video and I perceive intentionality, but as a journalist, it's not my job to tell you what my perception is. Uh, it's my job to tell you what happened. And it's exceptionally difficult to explain what happened. You could show what happened in the video. And even having ex- shown what happened in the video, unless you know about that reporter's particular disability, it's hard to build that connection. And so, it, you know, is that an open and shut case? I don't know that it is. If I'm a prosecutor, uh, can I bring that to trial and and know that I'm going to convince 12 jurors and they're, they're all going to side with me? That's the kind of assurity that I want as a reporter when I'm going to call somebody out and say they're lying. Look, I don't even think we need to go to that particular situation to call out President-elect Trump on lies. President-elect Trump has lied. There are... Uh, provable, unimpeachable situations in which he has lied. Um, in fairness, so did candidate Clinton, right? And so does pretty much every politician. The uh, amount of lies, the depth of lies, the breadth of the lies may be different. Um, but this is what we've come to expect from politicians. So the the fact that uh, President-elect Trump is now saying, oh, I didn't make fun of the disabled reporter, that's the media spewing lies about me, I don't know that that's a case that I'd want to take on as the media. I think there are other cases that are far more provable. Um, I think it was atrocious. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that he was making fun of someone. Um, am I going to call that specific instance a lie? I, I don't know. I think there are others that, that are far more provable. Mm. 
Jennifer Napier Pierce, I want to, uh, if, if you want to comment on that particular instance, uh, you yeah, can, you actually, can do that, I would. Yeah. I read a really interesting analysis on the Hill, where a reporter juxtaposes that video segment of him flailing about with other instances where he is he is ridiculing others and using similar gestures. I think Matt is right. I mean, I am not sure as a journalist whether or not he was pinpointing one reporter with disabilities. And this analysis on the Hill, the reporter points out that the reporter in question speaks perfectly and does not flail about. So it's hard to say whether or not he was, whether or not he was making fun. Clearly, he's disparaging, though. And there's no dispute that. He he makes fun of people, period. Um, I, for me, the takeaway from that whole Meryl Streep episode is Trump's response. And he tweets out, as he always does, uh, tweets out that Streep is overrated. Um, and the press is giving is giving that equal time to more fundamental, more much more serious issues. We have nominees who have not completed ethics disclosures. Uh, we've got all sorts of testimony going on, conflict of interest with uh, some of his appointments, including family members to White House staff. Uh, those seem to supersede, and yet the press tends to... I think that's the danger with Trump's tweeting is that it becomes a news story in itself. I guess I'm still working through that because on the one hand, he's going to be the leader of the free world. On the other hand, it is it discourages conversation from much more meaningful and important topics facing facing this nation so it's it's a little muddied but i i think matt is right on the on the point of the uh the disparagement he's absolutely making fun of something whether or not we know that it's uh because of a reporter's disability i'm not entirely sure now either way it was mean right i mean, oh, I mean, mean. we, we yes, could say absolutely. it was mean um I, you know i think uh one of the challenges that we have right now um and this brings this discussion kind of back to this fake versus real thing is we are spending a lot of time in the media in these discussions about what is fake versus real and so when jennifer says you know the media doesn't have is spending so much time on this that it's not focusing it's taking its eye off the ball of these other important issues that's one of the real pervasive problems we're facing right now in this kind of epidemic of false and misleading uh news lies hoaxes whatever you want to call them um is that it's that debate alone takes oxygen out of the room and it leaves less space and less energy and and fewer resources for prosecuting what we can I think all agree is real news. Uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, you uh, earlier in the discussion used an important word, at least important to, 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 to me in this discussion, that's vetting. And so, you know, as we all know, um, some newspapers are dying out. Some are are going less in influence. Um, More and more, uh, young people are getting their news from from Facebook and from Twitter, and and uh, there isn't that gatekeeper, which many of us have felt was has been important. And so, I'll direct this first to, to to you. 
um, in a world where more and more people are their own gatekeeper, their own vetter of, of, of news. Um, what will that mean? Everybody will have to have to be educated on what's important, what's not, what's real, what's not. Well, I, I think that, that yes, that that is absolutely important. But I think we also need to re-educate the public on the importance of what journalists do. And sadly, we cannot rest on our laurels. I mean, we have a legacy, uh, a grand tradition at the Salt Lake Tribune and other fine publications of uh, going to multiple sources, not just one, not just hearsay, not just gossip out on the street, uh, but diving into documents, uh, doing independent research, talking to people, lots of people, to find out the truth to the best uh, ability that we can. And so letting people know that when they go to one of these legacy newspapers, that it's gone through an extensive process. These stories don't just pop up, um, you know, from someone's imagination. They really are researched and uh, reported responsibly. I mean, I think that's a duty that all journalists, all reporters take very seriously. And again, we have to prove ourselves, reprove ourselves to the community at large that there is a difference between um, just taking something on face value, my mom said, my neighbor said, and, um, you know, diving into a story that has multiple dimensions, multiple sources, and uh, somebody who's taken the time to bring all of those sources together into a coherent narrative. I mean, there really is a difference between, um, you know, just storytelling or at the bar and uh, reading something in a newspaper. Again, we have to educate uh, the public generally, and especially the younger generation, that there is something that goes into reporting that is more than just word on the street. Matt LaPlante, your uh, TED Talk recently at uh, Utah State University was titled something like uh, Superman Must Die So That Clark Kent Can Live. And if I, if I heard your talk right... Superman is the, I guess, journalism as we knew it, and uh, Clark Kent is more the citizen. Is that did I did I get that right? Yeah, and in fact, uh, DC Comics a few years ago actually turned Clark Kent into a citizen journalist. He quit the Daily Planet and went to work as a blogger. I don't know how that worked out for him, but uh, yeah, that's the, I mean that's the metaphor that I was trying to build. So, uh, and I got uh, kind of a little bit of a depression, but some hope as well. You said, well, we just have to accept the the new world. So I guess my first question to you is, what what is the new world? Is it is it is it a world where uh, you know citizens are doing their own reporting? Absolutely, uh, it is. I mean, we live in a world now today more than ever before where everyone is a journalist, whether or not they um, realize it or not. Um, if you tweeted today uh, with the intention of sharing something that you believe to be true with an audience greater than yourself, you committed an act of journalism. And we all have the power to do that now, and we do that every day. Almost all of us do that every day. Uh, we put information on Facebook. We put information on Twitter. Now, a lot of that information is information about our own lives. It's probably not all that applicable to a very, very large audience, um, but it's also observations. Look, uh, when I was driving up from Salt Lake City to Logan uh, a couple of nights ago, um, there were crashes left and right. Uh, and center all over the road. And I can guarantee you that, uh, and I don't advise this, by the way, people driving by those crashes had their cell phones out taking photos of them, right? When you share a photo with, of a crash on the side of a highway, 
you are committing a small act of journalism. The problem is we don't think of it that way and we don't train people to do it as an educational system. I said for a very long time that we need to add a, a third R to our educational system, right? We have reading and writing and arithmetic and we need reporting. We need people to be brought up in a society that is preparing them for a world in which we are all mass communicators. The ethics, the um, the uh, skill sets, um, the knowledge that it takes to do that, to do that responsibly, and to do that in a way that helps contribute to a better world uh, is lacking from an educational system that is supposed to be preparing our children for the world they're entering. But Matt, I mean, that's, I would argue there is a difference between simply conveying information, simply communicating, and journalism. There is a responsibility that comes with reporting. And I, I'm not sure that a mere tweet constitutes reporting. It, it is uh, communicating. It's spreading the word about something that they saw, an eyewitness account. But as we see in the law, eyewitness accounts are not the full story. So I, I, I'm not sure I would say that everybody is a journalist. I, I, I'm just putting it out there. Well, that's and that, but and that is that's the that's the uh, pushback that I hear a lot from journalists when I when I make this suggestion. Right? Is is we we want to hold on to this, right? And that was the the whole kind of like concept behind the TED Talk speech, right? Is I wanted to hold on to this. I felt super. I felt powerful. But the Constitution, the First Amendment of our Constitution, doesn't apply just to me as a journalist, right? It applies to anyone who owns a press, and we all own a press now. So I have. Absolutely agree with Jennifer. One tweet alone doesn't make journalism. But you put that with another tweet and another tweet and another tweet. You put that with a thousand people's tweets, right? And all of a sudden what you have is a picture that one solitary journalist could never have created on their own. The ability for us to process that, for the ability for us to consume that as a society, and the ability of us for us for us to do it piece by piece in a more responsible way. So that we can call it journalism and so that it, it uh, embraces the best qualities of this craft that I really believe in and still believe in, is, even as it's changing, rests on us educating people how to do it better. So I, what I've been thinking in this, thank you for that back and forth um, to both of you. By the way, if you just tuned in, we're talking about fake news and journalism in the age of Trump. And we have with us in studio here at UPR Studios, Matt LaPlante, Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. And in uh, KCPW Studios, thanks to them in Salt Lake City, um, we have with us Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. So Matt, what, uh, let me uh, pose it this way. Every citizen a journalist, and you, you train citizens and, and, and empower them and, and let them know that they are journalists. They can do it in a responsible way. But is that necessary but not sufficient? And uh, the example that came to my mind is the videos of, uh, you know, all these depressing number of videos of mistreatment of, uh, of black men by, by, by police. And in our new age, certainly anybody with a with a cell phone, can capture that, and we haven't had that power in, in the past, and some of these things would have been swept under the carpet. Well, they have but been swept under the carpet. They have been swept under the carpet, but, and so that's wonderful, so the necessary part of it, but, but maybe not sufficient. I'll, I'll pose this to you and then to, to, to Jennifer. Um, isn't there some context needed? Isn't, isn't there some further investigation, investigative reporting needed in, oh, this, yeah, in these cases? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, context is, is crucial. 
uh, I mean, if everything you really know about a situation comes from a single meme, a single photo, a single video, you don't know jack about that situation. You don't have enough information to form an opinion. Um, that's part of the educational training that I think that journalists kind of already know because we're trained to know that. And I think that we need to hand over that, that knowledge to other people. Um, watching one video, as, as many jurors, jurors will tell you, I covered the court system for a long time, right? One video doesn't tell a complete story. Right. One photo doesn't tell a complete story. Um, there's this meme going around right now with uh, mug shots of a young white man who is uh, who recently pleaded down to a sexual assault of a disabled boy. And that that mug shot is placed right next to the mug shots of the four young black men and women who were recently arrested for assaulting a disabled boy and broadcasting it on Facebook Live, which is wow. Wow. Um, the meme makes this case that the racial role reversal is why one case became a national outrage and another case got far less coverage. But that's false equivalence, right? You can't know everything from a meme alone. Context is so vile. These cases are completely different. The state in which each of them is in, uh, in the judicial system, is very much different. Um, that video, that photo, that meme, that uh, you know, that quote, uh, which may or may not be from Mark Twain, uh, mm-hmm. could, you know, can be a great starting place for a conversation. But those conversations need to be guided by a collection of facts, and that's what we're losing right now. My students all the time they they lead when when we have online discussions. They lead every statement they make with "I think." As if it's a, oh, you know, like that's, they don't have to do any other work after that. It's just what they think, right? Um, and so, yeah, yeah, absolutely context is important. We have to teach people that context is important. Uh, let me let me pose this to, to Jennifer. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know if you accept my characterization, that the, 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 you know, citizen journalism, that, you know, people taking those videos, that's welcome, uh, uh, good development, but that context is necessary. It would, uh, I don't know, the newspapers, I, I'm guessing you're going to say the newspapers and other news go- gathering organizations provide that context. That absolutely, follow. absolutely. And that's, that, I guess that's why I dispute Matt's characterization of everyone is a journalist. Everyone is not a journalist. Everyone is a communicator, absolutely. Um, and we have all of these tools, and I do think that it's important for people to be alert. I mean, I, I think having these videos coming to the surface is really important, but it is just a beginning point. It's a start, and it allows people, I mean, I I would venture to say that most people do not have the time, the expertise, the energy, the passion, um, the financial wherewithal to abandon everything and pursue whatever they saw on a cell phone video. I mean, again, citizen journalists, very important, more information, more better, but there is a limit to what people can do on their own. It does require uh, time and energy uh, expertise that I, I would say your average Joe doesn't have uh, to, to pursue a story to its completion. And so, um, again, I guess it, it depends on how you define what a journalist is, what a reporter is. I still, I'm not trying to be territorial in any way, shape, or form, but I do think that there is... Um, a very important role that journalists can play in society, have been playing, will need to play uh, even greater 
to a greater extent, going into the future. And um, we need to push that message out as far and wide as we can, using all the tools at our disposal. Um, because, again, we can't just rest on, on uh, the legacy of the past. Let me uh, uh, provide a time, a brief time here for a map for a rebuttal on this. I'd like to hear a follow-up, and then we'll take a break and uh, come back. We have a, a bunch of comments and questions uh, via email. We're opening the phone lines as well, 800-826-1495. I want to hear your thoughts on fake news and journalism in, in this extraordinary time. Uh, so, Matt, uh, what do you think a world would look like if, if uh, you know much of the journalism infrastructure that we have today goes away? Because of whatever reason, financial pressures and other other uh, things, uh, can citizens provide that context and that follow-up investigative reporting? No, not in the same okay. way. Uh, much like, um, you know, with, with every evolution of our media ecosystem, we gain something, we lose something. Um, I am not an advocate for disbanding the legacy news media. I'm a member of the legacy news media. I write for newspapers and magazines. I mean, like, I'm on paper, baby, right? Uh, so so that's, that is certainly not what I'm advocating at all. Uh, here is what I am saying, though. Uh, legacy news providers are trusted today less than they ever have been in the history of our country. Um, Really? That is Even a, more than yellow journalism? Yeah, No, actually, Come no. On. We went to war because of yellow journalism. I mean, like, no, absolutely. The reason we went into the Spanish-American War was because the nation trusted newspapers, right? Now, that trust was wrongfully placed at that time, and I would say that we are, like, I, I have no problem with people being more skeptical of the legacy news media. The legacy news media has a long history of leading us to do pretty terrible things and contributing to bad decisions on the part of this country. Um, that's not to say that it doesn't provide a tremendous wealth of good, and it does. Again, I'm a part of this. This is, this is where my heart lies. I also acknowledge, however, that the, the world that we live in is one in which that average Joe that Jennifer was talking about can't distinguish the difference between what we call real news and fake news. That is a problem of the system. And one of the solutions to that problem is to make the average Joe a more recognized, a more respected part of the news gathering process. To do that, again, we can't just say the world is great like it is. To do that, we can't just say this will go, grow organically and it will all sort itself out. To do that, we all have to, and this is the, the pitch that I make at the end of the TED Talk, we all have to, as journalists, embrace our new role in this, in this world of training the next generation of superheroes. Jennifer, I, I, I heard obvious um, disagreement on the trust issue. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, n n I, I, I'm just, uh, I don't know if it's the low point of journalism uh, in the history of this nation, but um, it is definitely, uh, uh, we're, we're not on solid ground. Um, we need to regain the trust of the public. There's no question about that. Um, we have to do uh, work harder. We have to get the message out there, and we have to educate people on exactly how we do the job that we do. We can't pretend that we have all the secrets and the answers to society's problems. I mean, we really do need to um, sell ourselves and let people know that what they read in our pages and on our websites and what they hear on the airwaves and what they see on television uh, truly has gone through 
uh, an extensive process and that it's not just, you know, parroting. It's not just speaking off the cuff. Uh, let me uh, go to, uh, I do want to get to a break here <laughs> in just a minute, but the, the conversation has been so interesting, so thank you to our, to our guests. Um, we do have a couple of callers we want to get to before we go to break. So Betty in Washington County is up first. Betty, uh, thanks for being patient with us. Uh, thanks for calling. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. Um, I was actually going to bring up yellow journalism and um, its role in shaping public opinion. How in the world are we ever going to make people have a healthy skepticism because uh, I believe that um, a lot of the problems that are that the press is having right now is attributable to the rise of Fox News and people only wanting to listen to uh, the, the stories that fit their own uh, set of judgments that they have already. They're not um, willing to listen to something that is well-researched and, and has a good background. They just want to hear the soundbite that, uh, that justifies their own, their own feelings. Let me just say one thing. I'm trying desperately to weed myself from Facebook. Um, I you know, connect with family by it, but I get so much uh, CRAP on there. But recently there's a big headline. <clears throat> Queen Elizabeth um, suffers unspeakable tragedy was the headline. The unspeakable tragedy was the miscarriage of her granddaughter's baby. And I argue that that was not an, it was a tragedy, but it probably did not rise to the level of the headline. So we're, we're inundated with this all the time, all the time. Print journalism and any press is in the First Amendment as being free. And I think we need to emphasize that also. I'm afraid that we're headed for some restrictive, um, I'm not going to say laws, but at least leaning toward restricting the press, and that's very dangerous. Uh, but this teaching people to have healthy skepticism uh, is a big task, and um, uh, I wish I could, I wish I got your paper, Jennifer. They they don't deliver it where I live, so uh, from so time to time I buy that. it in St. George. But <laughs> I'm in the country, and uh, the Tribune doesn't um, send itself at, out to us. <laughs> Please read it <laughs> so online. Thank you, thank you for all you're doing. There, there you go. SLTrib.com, uh, Betty. Uh, Betty, some great yes. points there. Thank you so much for calling. Let me go first to Jennifer Napier Pierce on on this. Uh, so, how do we help people have a healthy skepticism about the news they read? Uh, well, I think that um, it's a great point that now that we have uh, more than three networks, now that we have uh, just uh, millions of information options, it's really difficult for people to to take the time to listen to something that they don't agree with. Um, but that's important, and I encourage everyone to read more newspapers, not fewer, to, to watch more television, not less, to, to really uh, soak in uh, multiple messaging sources, and then um, come to your own conclusions. I mean, I really do think that that is a vital skill. How do we teach that to people? Uh, again, I, I suppose it, it comes young, and maybe um, this is another thing we're going to have to plop onto the parents out there, but, you know, parents need to talk to their kids about what truth is, uh, what information can be relied upon, what needs to be looked at a lot more critically, and um, 
uh, only through you know multiple sources are you actually going to get what really happened. Matt, your uh, comments on anything that Betty said? Um, well, I I, I, um, I guess building off what Jennifer said, I, I very much agree. We do need to teach children about things. Um, th- there is a role for parents, obviously, although parents are already corrupted by their social media bubbles. Um, parents are corrupted by confirmation bias like everyone else. We need to teach children about confirmation bias. We're more likely to believe that something is real if it confirms to our previously held beliefs. Um, but knowing about confirmation bias is the first step in protecting ourselves and the people around us from its effects. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we can do to build trust in people to legacy media, like the Salt Lake Tribune, like the New York Times, like the L.A. Times, is demonstrate at a very young age to children the validity of these news sources. Um, if their first exposure to traditional media, if their first exposure to journalism as it's practiced in what we call a responsible form, and there's some caveats to that, too, because historically, <laughs> we haven't done such a good job, honestly. I mean, we, we, we tend to look at, with rose-colored glasses, at the history of our media. But if you look at, for instance, the Washington Post on uh, the day of the Watergate break-in, which is kind of like the, the moment that this like golden era of journalism supposedly happened, 95% of the quotes on that day, or the, of the people sourced in the stories that were on the front page of the Washington Post on that day, were white men. That's confirmation bias. So even in the midst of this golden era of traditional legacy media, right, we were screwing up. We weren't telling America's story. We were telling the story of people who look exactly like me and you, Tom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to teach children about that, too. We can't just tell them, oh, look, like, uh, read a newspaper. Newspapers are great. We have to acknowledge, by the way, this is the one industry in the world that acknowledges its mistakes every day, publishes its mistakes, right? We need to acknowledge the mistakes of our past as journalists, and we need to teach people a, a holistic understanding and history of journalism in America so that they can understand the time and place that they've arrived in now. That might sound complicated, but it's really no more complicated than teaching people how to read. It's not more complicated than teaching people math. It's not more complicated than teaching children the difficult things that we already teach them about the world. The only difference is we haven't acknowledged as a society yet that it is our responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. We haven't acknowledged as a society yet that media is such a big part of our lives and it is such a big part of our individual actions that we need to make it part of our educational Mm -hmm. system. Yeah, just add here that, uh, you know, just in agreement there that... uh, my parents taught me skepticism about advertising, that not everything you, you hear in an ad, I, they didn't want to have to go out and buy all the toys, of course. You know, that there, there, was, there was incentive there, but they taught me that, so it's not that big of a leap, you know, to, to underline your point, Matt. Clearly. Yeah. Um, so let's go to Jennifer and Vernal. Jennifer, uh, thanks for holding on here, and uh, we're glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, yeah. I, that, you were just talking about the advertising. It's like I remember John Stokroff telling me um, that when he was a kid, he had seen an ad to PF Flyers. If you buy a pair of PF Flyers, you'll be able to, like, race cars. And he actually tried to do it. But anyway, um, he didn't keep up with the car. But anyway, um, I was wanting to comment on the professor's observation that there's a limited amount of time, and then 
And then uh, the editor of the Tribune was saying, um, nobody's got the time to go through everything. And so um, the job that used to be done by the, the magazines and the, and the publishing houses and the newspapers, um, now Americans, in return for, you know, having access to so many sources, um, we also have to develop the ability to um, to budget uh, to, to budget our time because you know people have to make a living. But um, yeah, the the idea about focusing too much on Donald Trump's latest faux pas, and they're not faux pas anymore. He's eliminated the faux pas, I guess. But um, that's kind of like a red herring, and we can get distracted from things that are far more critical. And we do need to teach critical thinking uh, in junior high and high school, and we need to teach these kids this is how you tell the difference between a bogus website and a bogus story. And at the same time, we need to introduce them to the little tests that show us where our inherent biases are. And a lot of those have been taught, and and it, that would mean that kids might have to um, – say to their parents, you know, you taught me that, you know, these people are not quite, you know, they don't quite deserve to live where we live. Maybe that wasn't right. So the kids may be put in a position where they have to defy some of their parents' biases. But if you want to have a functioning democracy, that's got to happen. But anyway, it's a really good conversation. So thank you. Thanks, okay. Jennifer. Appreciate that. Okay. And uh, I, I think those are some great comments. Uh, we'll give a chance to our guests to respond to that after a break. We need to take a break now. Um, and you're listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams. My guests today are uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. She's joining us from KCBW uh, Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to them. And uh, Matt LaPlante, assistant professor of journalism and communication at Utah State University, also joins us. Our topic is fake news and journalism in the age of Trump. Uh, more following this break. Self, the magazine about women's health and fitness, prints its last issue next month. And yet, nothing ever dies. It doesn't, no form of media really goes away. It changes. I'm Kai Rizdal, taking stock of the magazine business. We'll have that story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street as well next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on the Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll highlight guitarists around the world from Latin America, Africa, Australia, and Japan. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Guitars, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm joined in studio here by Matt LaPlante, um, USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, and in KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City, uh, we have with us Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. Our topic is fake news and journalism in the age of Trump. 
Um, email is humming. The phone line is going. We'd love to hear your comment or question to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or our email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to turn uh, to those comments and uh, questions. We have a lot of them. We're likely to go over the top of the hour. Jennifer, I'm not sure what your schedule is. You're able to go a little longer? Not a problem at all. Oh, okay, and, and Matt is able to go a little longer as well, so... We'll, uh, we'll plan on that. Let me uh, get to this uh, email. Um, this kind of um, takes the emotional temperature of about half the country, <clears throat> as you'll see as I read this. Uh, this is Dan in Springdale. He says, after many years as a faithful New York Times subscriber and as a hardcore news junkie, I sent this message to the New York Times recently. And here's his uh, brief letter to the New York Times. Please cancel my subscription to the New York Times. This has been a difficult decision for me. The strongest reason to remain a subscriber is to support one of the most intelligent, fair, and insightful sources of news and investigative reporting on the planet. But understanding the truth and being able to do something about it are two different things. At 9.30 p.m. on November 8th, I stopped reading the news, listening to the news, or watching the news. At a single stroke, I've gone from a news junkie to a willfully ignorant bystander. One surprise for me is how easy it is to be totally ignorant of current events. That may be a clue about how we got to this dark place. But because I have not looked at the New York Times since then, I have concluded it doesn't make sense to keep the subscription. I have accepted that the future of America, and with it much of civilization, is lost, and that there is nothing we can do about it now. America rescued Germany and Japan after the last crisis in world civilization after they destroyed themselves. Perhaps they will return the favor this time. I doubt it. I believe the future is lost now. We will lurch from crisis to crisis until something really serious happens. Since there's nothing that can be done to stop it now, I have stepped to the wall and accepted the blindfold with gratitude. Thank you for being a great news source. It was a great ride while it lasted. That's Dan in the Springdale. Let me direct this first to you, Jennifer Napier-Pierce. <laughs> I don't know if you've got any of these types of letters at the Salt Lake Tribune. I think he describes the emotional state of you know about half the country on after election uh, uh, night, but uh, it's... I guess it's one it's one response. Uh, wall yourself off. I don't know if you would uh, advocate that response. Uh, well, absolutely not. I mean, I think citizens need to be engaged now more than ever. And I do feel like there is a hopelessness out there from, uh, again, as you say, about half the country. Uh, I know of people who did the exact same thing. They decided to disengage. Um, for a time. It was almost like a time of mourning for some people. And I, I sympathize with that. At the, at the same time, though, um, I, I feel very strongly that our democracy requires people to be well-informed. That is why I'm in this business. I know that's why Matt's in this business as well. Um, and, you know, one of our venerated founders, Thomas Jefferson, of course, said if he had to choose between, paraphrasing now, if he had to choose between newspapers and government, he would prefer newspapers. He, he understood that the role of information in democracy is essential. And so um, I, I understand Dan's sentiment um, and despair, uh, but I think at some point you can't live in a cave. Uh, as, as Plato said, we need to strive for the light and we need to, to come together. The only way to do that is to know what's going on in your world. It is a lot easier not to be engaged. I, I fully admit that. Um, um, 
but it has real consequences when you get the majority of the population feeling like Dan. That that is a big, big problem. Matt, I want to just read two sentences from Dan's uh, letter to the New York Times. Have you respond to that? And you respond to anything else that you like. Um, uh, he says, uh, one surprise for me is how easy it is to be totally ignorant of current events. The second sentence, that may be a clue how we got to this dark place. Oh, it is easy. It's, it's incredibly easy. And I see that in the lives of my students all the time. Um, we have a real tragedy of choices right now. Um, you can spend your entire life on Netflix. That's not to mention Hulu and Amazon Prime, and right? I mean, like, we, there's so much information out there, and so much of it is designed to make us feel good, to give us a warm, fuzzy inside. And it's a drug, right? It's not reality. Reality isn't like that. Look, like, we, we live in a wonderful world. I'm with Louis Armstrong on this one, right? It is an absolutely amazing, wonderful world. That doesn't mean we should be... Shelling ourselves away from the parts of the world that are bad, but it's easy to do now. It's especially easy to do for Americans. Um, we certainly have a, a tragedy of choices, and so yeah, I think I think Dan speaks for more than half of the country. I think Dan speaks for most of the country, um, not because most of the country is upset about how the election went, um, but because most of the country has made. A subconscious decision. I think Dan is unique in that he's made a conscientious decision. Uh, but most of the country has made a subconscious decision to wall themselves off from things that they perceive to be negative. And journalism dwells not entirely, but largely in the negative things that happen in the world. <laughs> we talk about this, right? So we're we're really setting ourselves up for this. Now, what's the antidote to that? I'm not exactly sure. I keep going back to education, education, education. Um, anytime my wife tells me, you know, like, oh, this is a, you know, like, it wasn't that so sad. I always try to turn it around, right? Like, uh, look, death is sad because we love the people that we lost so much, right? So when you dwell on love instead of loss, it, death is a reminder of something great about the world. Um, everything in the world gives us an opportunity to put things into that all-important context. I think legacy news could do a better job of putting things into, putting tragedy, putting difficult times into context. Our world, by and large, is a better place today than it ever has been for more people than it ever has been at per capita. So, yeah, like, I understand why people are, are walling themselves off. I think we can do a better job of getting them back by helping them understand the context of a world that is slowly improving. Mm. Jennifer, just a, just a brief follow-up, and then we get to the next comment. Uh, so Dan's uh, walling himself off, apparently from all news. It occurred to me as we were talking about this, that, and well, I got not tired. all news, Tom, because yeah. he's listening, right? He's yeah, that's right, that's right. He's listening to UPR. So, uh, way to go, Dan. Um, but um, it's it's kind of dangerous to wall yourself off from everything. I can understand being tired of the politics, and I I, I took a break from it, the intensity of my political and you know uh, interest for a while, and I'm getting back to it. Um, but, for example, the, the, the series of reports that came to my mind, uh, Jennifer, I'll put a plug in for this, was the, the Tribune's uh, reporting on sexual assault on campus. And so, you know, you can understand being weary of the, of the slog of the presidential campaign, but uh, don't wall yourself off from reporting like that. 
for example? Well, uh, I, I would put a plug in. There are good things happening. There, there's a lot of important storytelling going on. And so you will be missing out on um, really enriching your life and the lives of, of those around you if you completely uh, decide to, to enter that that bubble. I, I just think that it can be... Um, I don't know. There will be a sense of loss and disconnection from the broader society when you do that. So I certainly would not advise it. Um, thanks for the plug for our coverage. I'm really proud of the reporters who have delved um, just uh, ferociously into this uh, into this story. Last April, we had a BYU student come forward. And since then, the Salt Lake Tribune has really... Uh, it hasn't taken his eye off the ball on this one. Um, it's an important issue. Sexual assault affects every campus in this state uh, and uh, obviously throughout the country. And so um, we want to uh, some of our reporting has resulted in improvements on many campuses. And I think a lot of leaders, a lot of law enforcement are soul searching on how to make lives of young men and young women better on campus, safer. They're looking at campus security. They're looking at policies that um, that uh, hinder people from coming forward and um, disclosing. They're looking at the weak links in our justice system and why so many rapes are not prosecuted. It's important stuff. And again, to, to your point, I, I think Dan can see that this is important stuff. At least I, I, I would hope that he could. Um, so to, to wall yourself off forever probably is not the best solution for his family, for the community at large. And Matt, as you, I'll just go on to the to the next uh, comment. But uh, as you said, Matt, uh, people have been routinely routinely walling themselves off from news they don't want, right? Or news they don't like. We talked about you know silos and such. It could be beyond negativity. You know, it could be a political viewpoint you don't like. So you, you wall yourself off from that. Um, let's go to the next uh, comment here. This is from, uh, he signs himself as Wasp, um, who says, uh, Shakespeare, much ado about nothing. Putin picks the big straw in Syria, and a very childish U.S. whines over Russian hacking, perhaps hoping the election could be turned over, or perhaps the U.S. is wanting a third world war in which millions upon millions would, would lose. It's called revenge. And how did it influence the election? Not interested. Just know that Saudi's uh, birth to 9-11 killers are probably uh, angry, I'll change his word, because they wasted uh, $25 million on the Clinton Foundation. Uh, we're dragged through another two-year election, uh, no 90 days in the U.S., and he goes on to uh, d disparage both candidates. <laughs> um, let's see. This is apropos here. Uh, Peon's definition of fake news, it is the difference between what you say is news and our opinion. We differ, or you would not have to go begging every year. This morning, a chap complained that Obama in no way even attempted to interfere with the Israeli election. BBC and Reuters said it otherwise. No news is good news. Neither does that make us ignorant. Um, so that is WASP. I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, go on to the next uh, comment. Um, and uh, then if our guests have anything to say about uh, a series of comments here. 
Uh, here is Creed. Creed says, please ask your guests to explain an average rational thinking listener why First Amendment rights protect free speech when it's false and often dangerously misleading. Why don't the lies of fake news qualify to be prosecuted under libel or slander laws? If there were punitive consequences looming, perhaps people wouldn't find this activity so tempting. Matt, what do you think about that? I think solution? that I think that the writer would uh, prefer not to live in a world. I'm guessing that the writer would prefer not to live in the world where that was the case, because we'd all be in jail. I mean, the the slippery slope of uh, allowing the government more power to determine what is libel and slander uh, is uh, is a terrifying one, mm-hmm. um, and we see the consequences of that in in many other countries. Now, there are uh, developed. Uh, nations with developed democracies that have more stringent uh, rules on uh, their version of free speech, uh, particularly where it comes to hate speech. Uh, We could probably fiddle around the edges. Uh, We have uh, intentionally set up a country, our founders intentionally set up a country in which broad rights were given to the people to decide and to uh, maintain the way that they best saw fit. We see this in the Second Amendment, too, and the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um, Does everybody need an assault rifle? Uh, No, but protecting uh, an assault rifle protects people from the government coming and taking people's assault rifles away, theoretically protects people from having their shotguns and their handguns taken away, right? So this is so... Yeah, like, do I like the fact that the that uh, the American Ku Klux Klan can march down Main Street, uh, and that action is protected by my my First Amendment? No, I don't like that. Do I appreciate the fact that we've set our parameters so broadly that that protects speech that is not on the margins? Absolutely. Uh, we need to take a station ID break here. We'll have station ID and a brief break. When we come back, I'll uh, direct this question to Jennifer Napier-Pierce. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, our president-elect during the campaign musing that he'd like tougher libel laws. Uh, more following this break. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are uh, going a bit over today. It's, it's such an interesting topic, and it's a vigorous discussion, an important one, fake news and journalism in the age of uh, Trump. Uh, it's uh, Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams with uh, Matt LaPlante, USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, and Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune, who joins us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. So, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, I uh, wonder especially as an editor of a paper what what you thought. I'm, I'm sure you noticed it when President Trump on a couple of occasions, President-elect Trump, uh, a couple of occasions as a candidate, mused that he'd, he'd like uh, tougher libel laws. Uh, sort of shaking in the boots. You know, I think uh, a lot of people feel uh, very passionate about the Second Amendment. I feel equally as passionate about the First Amendment. Any infringement on that right, uh, gosh, you're going to have to pry that out of my cold, dead hands, right? I just feel like um, Trump has a different said set of rules for the way he thinks that Americans should be. Um, but my America, 
prizes free speech, prizes free expression, even the the expression that I don't like. Uh, that is why that is what a free society is. And so when you are talking about uh, infringing on that right in any way, shape or form, it, it does make me cringe. He has already changed the rules in Washington. Uh, the Salt Lake Tribune is the only news outlet in Utah that has a, a, a Washington correspondent. And uh, Thomas Burr, for the past year, has been the president of the National Press Club as well. He remarked to me how the environment is very different now because uh, Trump does not want to have the press pool following him around and documenting every movement like we have been. Uh, we've had this, this access that I think a lot of people have taken for granted um, to, to hold our executive in account, you know, to, he is the person in power, and so we've been able to to track his every move, to to look at his decision making very closely. On the flip side, uh, we have a president who tweets uh, about just the most random things, and he can really shape a, an entire news cycle. So. Um, I, I'm surprised that he would want to put any limits on on a free press. Um, I I I I don't want to um, encourage him to try. <laughs> I do think that would be a very dangerous thing. Um, I I just uh, it, it makes my heart hurt if he starts to go after that that First Amendment right. We need as a democracy, we need to be able to to speak freely, even about things that we find distasteful or we disagree with. Matt LaPlante, um, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship those in power have with the press, and they, you know, as presidents, for example, because you have president like Trump who uh, is a part of his act, part of the rallies, you know, the big element of showmanship, uh, put the press in a, in a pen and, and encouraged everyone to boo and hiss and made them the, the villain of the piece. On the other hand, he does, when he wants to, cultivate the press. And it, you know, Every president uh, has kind of had this love-hate relationship, right? I, I don't know if you see anything especially different here it, it feels a little different maybe because mr trump is is quite different um i th i think mr trump I, th I think every person in power has at least a very thinly veiled contempt for the people who have pretty much vowed to you know do everything that they can to expose any wrongdoings by that person in power right there's always a contentious relationship between the press and the people in power the, the difference between uh, past situations in this situation is that Mr. Trump makes no effort whatsoever to pretend it to be otherwise. He hates the press. He lets everybody know he hates the press. When he hates them a little too hard, he tweets that, oh, no, actually, he respects the press, and then he doesn't again, right? Um, I don't think that uh, Donald Trump's feelings about the press are much different than any other person uh, of that sort of power. And in fact, he probably appreciates the press more than any other president, in, not, not in terms of press rights, but in terms of like what it has been able to do for him. Here's a guy who was calling in news tips using fake names to newspapers and magazines in New York decades ago to try to build himself up as a persona. Um, Donald Trump loves free speech. He uses it all the time. He just doesn't, I, I, I fear he just doesn't understand where it comes from. Jennifer Napier-Pierce, I, I I'll just ask you if, if you think I am too alarmed by this. 
Uh, and that is the president-elect has praised Alex Jones and InfoWars. And if people don't know about InfoWars, I hesitate to have people go and check it out. I don't really want them to, but uh, I've brought it up, right? So, um, you know, if you want to see fake news and conspiracy theories, and including aliens and, you know, tin hats, that's, that's uh, Alex Jones. So now we have who's going to be the leader of the free world has praised him. And on the one hand, you can say, well, it may be uh, one showman to another, right? Uh, an appreciation of, of, of skill and entertainment, but I have this little kernel of, of anxiety that it, maybe it's more than that. I don't know what your thoughts are. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, yes, there there is high anxiety, I think, for a lot of people, um, not just because of his words, but his deeds. He has appointed Michael Flynn the to be our, our next national security advisor. And, of course, uh, Michael Flynn and his son have consistently shared fake news stories. Uh, one of note, Hillary Clinton is running some child sex trafficking out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., which had some real-world consequences. A guy went in with a gun and started uh, looking for this. Um, it's dangerous. It does make you scratch your head and wring your hands a little bit when you hear that uh, our president-elect is is trusting people who, who peddle this kind of fake news. And um, I can only hope that he will also surround himself with advisors who are um, more astute, more educated, more discriminating uh, in where they're getting their information. I know that he had his national security briefing. Um, I... I am not quite sure what to make of it. Um, it does make me tremble. Again, I do feel like people need more information now more than ever to, to be able to uh, talk to their representatives, to to engage with their government in, in a, a different way. On the flip side, you know, this president has been more accessible than any other president that we've ever seen. I mean, we sort of get an insight to his his whims, to his fears, uh, to his passions in a completely different way. So while I am quite nervous, uh, I do feel confidence in the institutions, uh, the democratic institutions that have been established. Um, there are checks and balances in our government. And so um, I have to trust them. Let's uh, go to our, our next series of comments by email. By the way, you can comment as well. We, uh, we'll, we'll go another uh, few minutes anyway uh, to, to fit your comment in. We'd love to hear what you think. Fake news and journalism in the age of Trump is the topic. We have with us Matt LaPlante, USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, and uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. This is Royden, who says, false news. It should, uh, should it even be given the dignity of being called news, is a digital plague. It contaminates truth, warps minds and perceptions, has already cost lives, and destroys reputations. Historically, it is the foundation of racism, fascism, and totalitarianism. That's Royden. Uh, Stanford uh, takes issue with uh, my characterization. This is just something I came up with for the title, Age of Trump. He says, in the age of Trump, news that the Benghazi riots caused by a dredged up dastardly video that few and certainly not the bad guys had seen, I believe that was in the age of Obama and Hillary. So state-supported fake news is acceptable. Now that is dastardly. 
That's Stanford. And uh, Loanne says, important topic. Who we listen to and or read determines what we think about our government. What we think about our government will determine what kind of government we have. Matt, any comment on any of those comments? Well, that's a point that uh, is shared by, or was shared, I should say, by Thomas Jefferson. Jennifer referenced a quote by Jefferson's popular quote about newspapers without government. The caveat that Jefferson added to that was, uh, and, and here I quote, I should mean that every man, and by this in the modern era, I suppose we could say every person, every man should receive those papers and be capable of reading them. Um, we can't just have a world in which uh, we have media. We have to have a world in which responsible media permeates and people have the capacity to understand it. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's vital. Hmm. Let's go next to a comment from Rob in uh, St. George. Rob says, I've seen several who've worked for military intelligence agencies now working for local news organizations. One could name names both locally and nationally. Do the panelists see the involvement of state public relations agencies in news organizations as benign? Is there cause for concern that state agencies are manipulating news organizations? Have some news organizations been captured by state agencies already? Uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, direct that Hmm. one to you first. Intriguing. Uh, I... Uh, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. Um, Do reporters trust state agencies? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, we have to. We we have to rely on some data. We have to rely on reports. Um, uh, Should we do that wholesale? Absolutely not. I mean, that is um, there is a a very healthy skepticism, a, a critical eye in any journalism uh, organization, and I do feel like um, it, it's part of the story, but is it the whole story? No. I mean, it's an institution of power, and again, journalists have a duty to hold those institutions of power accountable. What okay. do you think, Matt? Transparency is really key, uh, key in this case. Um, <clears throat> You know, should there be a blanket rule that says military intelligence uh, can't participate in the news ecosphere? Well, if there was, I couldn't participate in the news ecosphere. I'm a former intelligence analyst for the Navy. Um, It's easy to make blanket suggestions about what can and cannot be, should and should not be in our media ecosphere. Um, it's a lot harder to do the hard work of deciding like what's appropriate and what's not appropriate on a day-to-day basis, and that's why transparency is key. If everybody knows who the players are, understands where they came from, um, and understands how to process that information and how to uh, insert it into their preconceived biases about what the news should be, uh, I think we're okay. Let's go to uh, our next. <clears throat> excuse me, our our next. Um commenter and this is the the last one so far we'll wrap this up uh, here pretty quick this is Catherine, who says people should start comparing some of the news they read with the inquirer and sun news magazines when i was growing up it was common perception that these magazines were a source of fake news society should transfer that thought to much of what they read online fake news is not new Matt, I get a good point, right? We, we've Absolutely. always had fake news. We've, we have always had fake news. This is always what has been with us. Um, you know, the, the difference today is the pervasiveness of it. 
Um, but this is not something that we're facing for the first time. So I'm not, I'm not ready to throw my hands up in despair. This is a challenge that our country has met before. I think this is a challenge that our country will meet again. I don't think it is going to be eliminated from uh, our information uh, ecosphere. I think what's going to happen is that we are going to adjust to the new times. We are going to adjust through education. We are going to adjust through uh, social shaming. We are going to adjust through all of the things that we have ever done to address any challenge. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, welcome to the new world. Mm. Jennifer Napier Pierce, I wonder what your thoughts are on this. You know, I, I think we could all agree that uh, fake news has always been there. Maybe more intensity and more venues nowadays. Uh, so, in this new world, uh, are, are we going to adjust? And if so, how how do we adjust and how do we combat overcome fake news? Well, I mean, it, it really comes down to conversation. It comes down to, to talking. It, it comes down to exposure. And as Matt said, you know, education, education, education. People need to have their antenna up. They need to be aware that not everything uh, that they read, that they hear, that they see is actually true. And so consulting multiple sources. I, I think that, um, again, newspapers in particular, broadcast media uh, as a whole, it, we all have a responsibility to get that message out and to let people know exactly how we do what we do and why it's important. If we don't talk about uh, why uh, journalism remains uh, important in people's lives, then we deserve to die. You know, <laughs> I don't think that um, we should go down just um, letting people think that uh, it's okay, that there is no distinction between what journalists do. Journalists do have a, a vital role in our society, and we need to talk about it more. Well, uh, thank you so much for talking about it here. Well, uh, in the conversation uh, there, uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune, has joined us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And Matt LaPlante, USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, has joined me in studio. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thanks to our listeners who have uh, contributed to this fascinating conversation. Uh, the conversation can continue. Hope that it will online uh, uh, via email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today. I'm Daniel Kinka, science reporter for Utah Public Radio. And I want to hear your questions about science. We'd like to answer the questions that our listeners want answers to, talk about the things they want to hear about. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook and Twitter. Just be sure to include the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Crowood. This is Radio Lab Today. Blood. blood. Bitterness, exploding fire, wailing blood and bleeding. For Shakespeare, blood was blood. This is James Shapiro, Shakespeare expert, friend of our show, and he says people back in Shakespeare's day were familiar with the sight of blood, the feel of blood, even, you know, the smell of blood. What do I mean? Young Shakespeare's a kid. He grew up in Stratford, and at 21, he went to London. He came as an actor, and probably as the youngest actor in the company. Uh, what he was sent to do is to go to the shambles. That's a slaughterhouse. Block and a half away, and get a bucket of blood, 
so that when they do the Spanish tragedy or any other, I mean, they're not using fake blood. They're using animal blood in all these plays. Really? They didn't use fake blood? No, fake, why fake blood? How do you get fake blood? You've got to make fake blood. You just walk two blocks on the way from where he lived to the theater. He's going to pass some kind of slaughtering area. I don't know how much it costs for a bucket of blood, but you need a bucket of blood for Titus Andronicus. You need a bucket of blood for Julius Caesar. In that play, Shakespeare has Mark Anthony say, I stand upon slippery ground. I mean, that stage is covered in blood, and he's slipping in this blood. And all the men had just stooped and washed in Caesar's blood up to, you know, the elbow. So there is blood in this play. In all of the plays, the comedies, the romances, the histories, all of them. The word blood itself occurs 673 times in 571 speeches in 41 of Shakespeare's plays and poems, which means almost every plain poem. 37 times in King John. Marched to the marketplace in Frenchman's blood. Lusty blood again, which we... Living blood doth in these temples beat. 28 times in Richard III. One raised in blood, and one in blood... In that congealed mouths and bleed of... To that royal blood. 22 times in Henry IV, part one. With her own children's blood. Now, it means a lot of different things. It means, I'm of good blood... I'm of high social station. And, of course, there was bad blood or cursed blood or being hot-blooded or cold-blooded. And sometimes, as in Macbeth, it just means blood. Blood will have blood. I am in blood, stepped in. I'm so of far. your blood is stopped. The, the heavens faces wall batched with blood. His silver skin laced with his golden blood. He's waiting. You know, he feels he is waiting in blood. Just think of that for a moment, how horrible the experience must be. Think of stepping into the ocean and its blood. For most of us, this is just a metaphor. What I'm trying to say is for this culture, blood was more than a metaphor. Blood was the thing that makes you you. Life, death, kinship, ties, 